And it was my original intent to uh, be in Psalm 11 today. And the Lord stirred in my heart in a way that I wasn't expecting, and it caused a pretty significant change of plans, as you can see, not being in Psalm 11. So back in March, when we were studying in the book of Ephesians, we looked at the verses that talked about the fact that God has given some to be apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for every good work to build up the body of Christ. And when we went through that passage of Scripture, one of the things that came out in my study, and it was even communicated in the message, was that the pastor and the teacher is to feed himself, he is to feed others, and he is to feed others, teach others to be able to feed themselves. And as I wrestled with that and thought about that, I, I just came to the conclusion that we tend to take so much for granted. We assume that people are mature in their faith because they've been in church for a long time. We assume people spend adequate amounts of time in their Bible because they can quote some verses or they can talk the Christian lingo. But we don't really know how mature one is in their faith, but God does know. So all of these things that I was thinking about in terms of building up the body of Christ and the responsibility to teach others to feed themselves was rekindled yesterday morning at our men's breakfast, and we did a study on the Word of God, God's Word in your life. And as I went through that with the men that were there, I came back to the same conviction that I had back in March. What am I doing, what are we doing as a church to help others be able to feed themselves in such a way that they can glory in the Lord who has saved them, that they can grow in their faith and their service to Him, and not hope or assume that that is taking place in some other venue. We as a church have a responsibility to train ourselves to grow in the Lord together. And we shouldn't be dependent upon Bible studies in the community, preachers on TV, radio programs. We should be dependent upon the family of God and the local body of believers to be a part of Sharpening iron together. When I go back and look at this initial explanation of discipleship and this expectation that is communicated to the apostles by the Lord Jesus before his ascension, the Great Commission is where it all really begins for the church. It is the marching orders for the church. Very familiar verses out of Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so encapsulated in these brief verses is the expectation that the church is going to be busy doing these things that God has called them to do, that Jesus has instructed them to do, as his last words before he ascended into heaven, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. So as I think about being a disciple, and what does that mean for us, there is no shortage of books on the topic, different philosophies, different styles, different methodologies, different priorities, different emphases. It would be impossible to cover 
adequately the topic of discipleship in one or two messages. There are many, many things that I could say that I won't, that I should say that I won't, but I'm going to try to summarize as much as I can, as succinctly as I can, this thing about being a disciple. So we see in the Great Commission three keys. The first key, I'm sorry, I didn't flip. The first key is that we are told to go and make disciples. This is evangelism. We often wait for others to come to us so that we can share the gospel with them. There's nothing wrong with creating things that attract people to you so that you can share the gospel with them. But the expectation is that we are going to go and evangelize. As you go, as you live your life, as you are out and about, we are to be evangelistic. We are to share the gospel with other people. Secondly, we are to teach them to observe, and that is discipleship. Teaching others to observe everything that Jesus has commanded is the second part, the other side of the coin of evangelism, if you will. We are to win the lost. We are to be used by God in that respect. And then once they are one, we are to train them and grow them in their relationship with the Lord. Thirdly, we are reminded that Jesus is with us always. He is our help. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. There are none that have been called to do it all by themselves. And if you forget that, I remind you to go back and read some of the prophets in the Old Testament who spoke to deaf audiences for years and years and years with great faithfulness. God was their help. God was their strength. God was their voice. So I think about this. Great commission, this call on the church, this expectation for every Christian. I'm reminded of this. In the United States today, some 80 to 85 percent of our population professes to be believers in Jesus Christ. But did you know that professing Christians commit adultery at nearly identical rates of those who profess no faith in Christ? Did you know that professing Christians divorce at a nearly identical rate of those who profess no faith? In Jesus Christ. Are you aware that God is being systematically removed from our culture so that there is no meaningful conversation about God in the media? God has been systematically removed from the schools. In fact, there's been recent conversation about removing from the Pledge of Allegiance one nation under God. There's even been ripples about taking off of our coins in God we trust. This country that allegedly professes to know Christ wants to strip a God consciousness away from our culture. 90 to 95% of Christians, evangelical Christians, will say, I have never shared my faith with another person. I've never told them how they can come to know Jesus Christ. It's been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus left this earth, and most recent estimates say that nearly a third of the world's population has never heard the gospel message. So the conclusion that I can draw from these brief statistics is this, is that the church has not taken the Great Commission very seriously. We don't evangelize. We don't disciple. And we ourselves are not being discipled in a meaningful, intentional, systematic, repeatable way. The assumption is that if you're in church long enough, if you read your Bible enough times, then you will develop a mature faith in Christ. That might happen. But I don't think we are smart to assume that that will happen or to just hope that that's going to happen. I think that the church, not just Grace Fellowship, but I think the church 
universal ought to take this command from the Lord very, very seriously. So let's ask the question, what is a disciple? And as we ask that question, let's look at what Jesus says to us in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now, at the time that this is being recorded, Jesus has already fed the 5,000. He has fed the 4,000, as recorded in Luke. He has healed numerous people. He has a crowd. There are throngs of people who are clamoring for him and following him and walking everywhere that he goes because they've seen what Jesus can do. Verse 25 begins, Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish... All who observe it began to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore salt is good, but even salt, but even, excuse me, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There is a serious thinning of the crowd that is about to take place because Jesus is making very, very clear what it means to be a disciple. So what we want to understand at the most basic level is this. A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. Now, physically and literally, the crowds were following him everywhere he went. He would go in a boat to the other side of the lake, and by the time he got there, the crowd was already there or not far away. Everywhere he went, there were these large crowds who were going along with him. The people enjoyed the food. They enjoyed the miracles. It was a bit of a spectacle. The teaching was radical. There was a fervor that was taking place over the ministry of Christ, and the crowds were huge. But what Jesus is going to do in this parable, if you will, in this explanation of discipleship, is he's going to boil it down to what it really means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Number one, a disciple loves God more than anyone else. Now, he gives this extreme example, doesn't he? You read this and you go, well, that's ridiculous. Why would we be expected to hate our mother or our father or our brothers or our sisters? Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus means by that is that a disciple's love for the master is to be 
so different from the love he has for anyone else that my love for my family is to be like hatred as it compares to the love that I have for Jesus Christ. We are to love him like we love no one else. It is a special love. It is a very exclusive love. It is a love that is supposed to involve all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all of our strength. Jesus understood, Jesus knew very well that as he looked out at the crowds who were following him, they didn't love him with that kind of love. They loved him because he was feeding them. They loved him because there was hope that somebody might be able to heal them from their blindness or their lameness. Jesus could look at the heart of a man and say, I know that you don't love me. And so as he lays down the law here about what it means to be a disciple, he makes it very clear that a comparison to our love for him, our love for anyone else, would be like hatred. We're to love our fathers and our mothers. In fact, we're to honor them. We're to obey them. We're to submit to them as children. But we're to love him, unlike our love for our mother. And then he finishes this expectation that not only are we to hate our families in comparison to our love for him, we are to hate even our own life. And I think that's the rub in following Jesus. I think that's really the crux of the matter when we consider what we give, what we don't give, what we do, what we won't do, because we want to please ourselves. We want to live our lives for ourselves. Well, a disciple loves God more than he loves any other person. Secondly, a disciple carries his cross. Jesus says in verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus, Jesus is prophetically speaking about the kind of death that he is going to die. But he's talking about a figurative cross. He's talking to you and I about a spiritual cross. It's a cross of self-denial. It's a cross that says, not my will, but your will. A cross that says, not my life, but your life. It's a, life, it's a cross that says, I am willing to sacrifice anything and everything in order to follow you. In this era, in this culture, dying on a Roman cross was the most hideous of deaths that one could die. It was humiliating. It was incredibly painful. And after you were beat within an inch of your life, you were expected to carry the beam through the city streets to be mocked and to be ridiculed and to be made fun of and to become a spectacle for all the world to see, to wag their heads in disbelief, to endure their scorn and their shame as you march to the place where you are going to die. Carrying your cross in the Roman world, was an admission that the Roman Empire was correct and the sentence of death imposed on him was correct and it was deserving and Rome was right and I am wrong. So when Jesus asks us to carry our cross and to follow him, he's referring to our public display to whatever part of the world can see us that Jesus is right And I'm going to follow him even if it means my physical death. This expectation to deny ourselves and carry our cross is a tough one, isn't it? And yet in the church today, you'll hear many, many, many people say, you know, that's too much time. 
takes too much preparation. It's too inconvenient. It's just too far. And we create so many excuses that prevent us from serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and fulfilling this expectation that we carry our cross as He carried His cross. That we almost create a picture where Jesus is obligated to us as opposed to our being obligated to Him. So we're to love Him more than any other person. We are to deny ourselves and carry our own cross. Number three, a disciple is expected to count the cost. Verses 28 to 32, Jesus gives this analogy. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. In the construction of a building, it takes careful planning. It takes enormous amounts of resource. And there needs to be a clear understanding before the project is begun of what is going to be required to bring that to completion. A haphazard plan will result in a big mess and an incomplete project. So in the same way, in a spiritual sense, Christians who simply make a profession of faith and lay down a foundation for their life, but never build upon that foundation with spiritual growth, discipleship, being conformed to the image of Christ will be incomplete in their spiritual journey. Many a life has gone astray because there's been no meaningful discipleship. There's been no meaningful growth. And those who heard the profession of faith will say, huh, I wonder what happened to him. I guess it's real. It's, I guess it's not real. I guess it's just a bunch of hocus pocus and a big crutch for the weak. He said he was going to do. He said that's what he was about. But here he is living no different from me. What king sets out to meet another king in battle and will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So if you're going to go to war, you need to understand whether or not you can win that war. Because if you don't think you can win the battle, if you don't think you can get to the finish line, you're better off to just surrender before you begin the battle. But let me ask you the question. Are you and I expected to surrender to our lust and to our flesh and to our spiritual enemy and not even try? Is that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to carry our cross and deny ourselves. We're supposed to love Him like we love no other. We're supposed to consider what it's going to require of me to become who He wants me to be so that I can do what He wants me to do because He died on the cross in my place. He's worthy, is He not? He's deserving, is He not? Well, disciples will plan and they will make the necessary sacrifice to become what Christ wants us to become. And that is the expectation that Jesus lays down as He is thinning out the crowd from those who truly follow Him and those who just pretend. Number four, a disciple loves God more than he loves things. Verse 33, seemingly comes out of nowhere. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Well, there it is. You're going to cross the line. You're going to get into money now. Because that's really what it's all about, isn't it? Religion is just about me giving you my money and making you rich. Well, 
prior to this explanation to the people who were following Jesus, he had encountered the rich young ruler. Because he knew the rich young ruler's heart, he looked at him and said, if you want to follow me, give up all your possessions, and then you can follow me. Well, wait a minute. I, I could never do that. I've got too much stuff. And the underlying message is, I love my stuff too much to give it up. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not asking us to literally sell everything that we own and to go into a monastery. But, you know, some have done that. Some have taken this instruction very literal. And they've sold all their possessions. They've lived, they've willingly lived a life below the poverty level because this is what they think Jesus means. To give up means to relinquish ownership of our stuff and instead become stewards or managers of what God has entrusted to us. So he's not asking us to sell all that we have and give it away. What he's asking us to do is to simply lay it all at the feet of the master and say, this isn't mine, this is yours. I don't own this, I just manage it. I'm happy to do with it whatever you want me to do. I did this study years ago. Of all the churches that I've been on staff at and had significant involvement in their budgets, I would go through the roster and I would look at the number of giving units. And a giving unit would be a family or a single head of household. And I would calculate the number of giving units in each of these churches. And I would say, if each of these giving units lived at the poverty level and gave a gift of 10% to the church, every church I've been in, their giving would double or triple over the course of a year. If everybody gave and lived at poverty level. Now, why is that so? It's because we love our stuff. And far too many have made life about stuff. I'm not happy unless I have a new car every two years. I'm not happy unless I can go on the most luxurious of vacations. I'm not happy unless I can have designer clothing. There are a lot of Christians who live their lives in bondage to stuff. So a real test of discipleship is one who can say, this doesn't belong to me. It's yours and you've entrusted it to me. And I want to be a faithful manager, a faithful steward of what you have given to me. Jesus is simply exposing to those who are professing to be his disciples what is really most important to them and whether or not they're willing to give that up in order to follow him. A disciple must love God more than anyone else. A disciple must carry his cross. A disciple must count the cost. And a disciple must love God more than he loves things. So let me say this before we go on. None of us will do this Perfectly. Never. But a disciple will grow in each of these areas throughout his life. So that as he pursues the one who has loved him and saved him, he will love him more. He will deny himself more. He will be willing to relinquish stuff to the foot of the master. He will love him first. That's the intent of this thinning out. It is our increased growth in Him, our growing desire to love Him and serve Him and honor Him and please Him, and that is the heart of a disciple. So for those who profess to know Christ, these expectations mean something, don't they? 
Here's where the expectation gets fleshed out. Verses 34 and 35. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. You know, when you put salt on your food, you're doing it to flavor it, to season it, right? But if that salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season the salt? The idea is you can't. You can't do that. Once salt has lost its saltiness, it's no longer salt. It's good for nothing. And the analogy is very simply this. Is that when a Christian who professes to be a disciple is unwilling to embrace these expectations and is content to live their life as they are with no forward movement, with no growth, then they are like salt that has lost its saltiness and really isn't very good for the kingdom of God. doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation. It simply means that when we give an account of our life, when God looks at our life and, and evaluates what we've done with what he has given to us, there's not going to be a whole lot to offer back because we've said, I loved other people and myself and things more than I loved you. Our salvation is not just to be for our benefit. Our salvation is to be used in service to Him to make a difference in the lives that God puts around us to make an impact for the gospel of Christ. To say no to loving God more than anyone else. To be unwilling to sacrifice for Christ by carrying your cross. By not being willing to give up your stuff, you're really saying no to being a disciple, as Jesus explains it in Luke chapter 14. So what is discipleship? We've looked at what a disciple is briefly. We'll look at that more next time. But what is discipleship? Well, discipleship is very simply a relationship built around helping someone to follow Christ. It's a relationship that has as its purpose growth in Christ. You know, we will seek out friends who do things that we like to do so we have someone to do those things with. Isn't that right? So what we're talking about here in discipleship is we're seeking out people that I can help grow in their walk with the Lord or that can help me grow in my walk with the Lord. Now, we're not going to break this down in great detail, but if you'll flip over real quick to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you can follow along on the screen if you'd like, we see a great analogy, a great picture image of what this discipleship relationship really looks like. Paul speaking to the church at Thessalonica says, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you, believers, just as you know how we are exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father with his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, when Paul and the others traveled to a new area, 
They didn't just see a bunch of people get saved and then move on. They stayed and they invested themselves in the lives of others and made sure that the foundation of discipleship was taking place. So discipleship is a relationship that is built around helping someone grow in their relationship with Christ. So it involves a couple of things. Number one, it involves caring, caring for people. It is seeing the need and responding to that need. It is a desire to invest in someone else's life for their benefit so that they can know and serve and worship and more intently love this God that has saved them. Number two, it involves time. I get this backwards, I'm sorry. It involves time. Discipleship isn't a six-week course. It's not a six-month course. It's a relationship over time that enables you to have an ear, to have respect, to have trust in order to help someone grow in their relationship with God. Thirdly, it's instruction. It's just not sitting around and talking about the game or about the weather or about the hobby. It's teaching them about Jesus Christ, about the truth of God's Word for a very specific purpose. The result is so that we would have a worthy walk. I'm so glad that I don't forget what that word worthy means in the biblical explanation. To be worthy means to be of equal weight. It is to put my life on the scale of the sacrifice that Christ has made for me and to live in such a way that I'm increasingly making that scale balanced. Now, obviously, we're not going to make it balanced. It's never going to be on par. But like a 100-pound kid sitting on a seesaw with a 30-pound lightweight, it's so disproportionate that there's no movement at all. And what you and I are to do is we are to grow in our relationship with the Lord in such a way that we begin to balance out the scale as we grow in our understanding and in our submission to Him. So what happens when we disciple? Well, when we disciple, number one, we learn to love. We learn to love other people. When we begin to see them and their need, we begin to have empathy for their challenges and their struggles, their past, their future, and we learn to love them, and it makes us more willing to invest our lives in them. Number two, we learn to lead. We learn about the process of helping somebody along a path, along a journey that sees them grow in the relationship with the Lord. Thirdly, we learn to serve, putting their needs ahead of our own. Sacrificing our wants and our desires for the good and the benefit of someone else. Four, we learn to be dependent upon God. Remembering in the Great Commission that Jesus is with us always. He is our help. We learn to be dependent upon God to do things that we can't do in our own strength. That we can't resolve in our own understanding. But God chooses to use us in such a way that it benefits the life of another person. Number five, we learn. We just simply learn. We grow in the Lord. He sharpens us. He imparts greater truth. He develops our character. We become more patient. We understand what it means to persevere. And most importantly, we will bend our knees in prayer. You know, one of the great blessings for me in teaching is what I learn in the process. 
reading five, six, seven commentaries over a passage of Scripture and getting all the different perspectives and then seeking out other resources to fill in some of the gaps. I learned so much in the preparation. And that's the bottom line. As a discipler, is that you will learn so much about God, about yourself, about the person or the people you're serving. You know, several months ago, as we were talking in our elder group about making a spiritual investment in the lives of people, that's what discipleship is. It's an opportunity to take what God has given to us, as little or as great, and to be able to impart that to someone else and entrust that God would use that in such a way that their life would be better. But you know, when we love other people and other things and ourselves and our stuff more than we love Him, we're not going to say yes to discipleship. We're going to stiff-arm God and keep Him at arm's length. I've drawn a line. I'm only going to go so far. I'm not willing to go any further. Is that really the heart of a disciple? Is that what God did with us? To think about what Jesus did so that we could know him ought to cause us to be willing to do anything he asks us to do because he's so good and so gracious and so loving and so worthy and yet Far too many Christians are so content with where they are in their spiritual journey. They don't want it. They don't need it. The body of Christ suffers. The work of the church suffers. And you don't get the blessing. I'm not directing this message at this church in particular, nor am I thinking of any individual. I'm thinking about the church as a whole. The need that is out there, it's everywhere. The need that's in every church for spiritual growth. And if we would simply do what God has called us to do in great obedience, God would be pleased and we would be blessed. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want you to think for a moment about where you are in your journey with the Lord. Is there a deep sense of contentment? Satisfied with where you are, with the way things are going? No need to invest, to give, to give up? You see, when we don't ever feel a need to take another step, then in actuality we're going backwards. Because we're running from the Lord. Father, how we give you thanks that you are so gracious and so merciful. How tolerant you are of such wayward children. Father, I pray that you would free us up from our own hang-ups. From our unwillingness and from our rebellion to what it means to follow you, to give you our very best. There's not a single one of us that can't identify an area that we are withholding something from you. God, would you reveal those things to us? Would you create a deep sense of conviction in our life? 
And then we'll thank you that you will encourage us through your graciousness to take the next step to follow you, to experience your cleansing and your mercy. God, how I give you thanks that you have gifted every believer to serve you. And I pray that you would find us willing to serve in any and every way that we can to bring you glory and honor. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.